Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. In today's episode, I'm in conversation with Lual Mayan. Lual's story is absolutely inspirational. He had never seen a computer until he was 17 years old. That's because he was raised in a refugee camp in Uganda. Now, he's the founder and CEO of Janoob Games and the creator of an innovative video game that brings players into the life of a refugee. That game is called Salam, which means peace in Arabic. Lawal's transformative game gives empathy to the player for refugees. Lawal has received the prestigious Global Gaming Citizen Award from the Game Awards and Facebook Gaming. He speaks to people all over the world about his story, which begins with his parents being forced to leave everything they knew and love in South Sudan and risk their lives to walk 250 miles to Uganda with no guarantee of survival. It was his parents' demonstration of strength and courage that gave Lawal the determination to walk three hours a day just to charge his computer and to teach himself how to code. Tune in to this episode of Stories of Transformation to hear the full story of Lawal's parents' treacherous journey and what it was like for Lawal growing up in a refugee camp how he got his first computer and what inspired him to start coding and create games for peace in the first place. If you find Lowell's story inspirational, please share it far and wide. So, without further ado, I bring you Lowell Mayan. Lowell Mayan, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me today. It's um, it's a beautiful day today. Really excited to be part of this conversation today. Yeah. And so, Lawal, the reason why I wanted to speak with you is because your story is unbelievable. You are from South Sudan, lived in refugee camps during a war, and now you're in Washington D.C. as an entrepreneur. And so, what I want to do is talk to you about how you went from South Sudan became a video game developer, and then found yourself in the United States, in Washington, D.C., now speaking to people from all over the world about your story. Tell us about how your childhood was, and tell us about South Sudan, and kind of how your your, your childhood kind of manifested, and we'll take it from there. Yeah, definitely. That's that's a very good question, and uh, as you mentioned, you know, my childhood was, uh, was not easy, because being a refugee, growing up in a refugee camp, and also looking at the journey that my family had to go through, it wasn't something that it that was easy for them. At the end of the day, for me to even talk about my childhood, for me even to be talk about it, my family, I have to like start talking about like the root cause of everything. Refugees around the world and everybody, all the displaced people, they have different circumstances and reason why they had to leave their countries. And each of us have different, you know, I always tell people that nobody just wake up in the morning as a refugee or nobody just wake up in the morning and leave what they love. It's a decision of life and death. For example, my family, there was a civil war that started in South Sudan that actually started like killing a lot of people. And my family had to flee the country because they were looking for a place of refuge, you know, a place where they can be able to like start a new life. For them, they were farmers in South Sudan. They were growing up, they have everything that they love there. So they had to like choose, you know, life. And, and, and for that, they had to like really 
walk for 250 miles from South Sudan to be able to find a place of refuge, they ended up in northern Uganda. When my family left South Sudan, during the war, I wasn't born yet. During that time, uh, I was born on the way now when my family was almost arriving to Uganda. And all the like horrible stories my mom could tell me, you know, like losing two of my sisters on, my, on, on their way as they're fleeing the, the country. They had no food to eat. You know, they were also battling with like wild animals on the way. They had to like cross the rivers, like all those things, even they have to fear their life. But they have no option. The only option was for them to like find a place of peace, no matter what it's going to take them to be able to find that place. When I asked my mother, like, when you left South Sudan, when you flee the country, did you even know where you're going to? Because sometimes you have to like really know that you're going to a place which is safety. But for them, they didn't know. For them, they were just fleeing the country wherever they're going to end up. If they're going to like end up in the next two days, next three years, two, four years, all they wanted was to find a place of refuge. And when they reached to northern Uganda, when they reached the border, I, I was born there. So it wasn't like, it wasn't really an easy journey, you know. It's a journey that was really hard for them. Nobody deserved to be in that position. And, and for them, they had no option. Even with my father, he had to take a different road because when he flew with the family and they have like an ambush on the way and they arrested, they will kill everybody when they find a man. So my, my, my father had to like take a different, his own way so that he cannot put the family in the risk. So it was just really a very, a very hard decision, a very hard life, a very difficult situation for them. That's unbelievable, Lawal. So you were born on the journey from when your parents were escaping the war in South Sudan. You were born en route to refugee camps in Uganda. How did your life then start to kind of manifest and take shape once you were in the refugee camps? Because that's where you were spent a lot of your time until you essentially left again. So tell us about that experience. It wasn't an easy experience for me. Like um, for me as a child, as I was growing up in the refugee camp, beginning to understand the journey, beginning to understand the situation that we go through in the refugee camp. A lot of people think that being in a refugee camp is something that is temporary. You know, you're going to go there for like two years, three years, and then you go back to your country. No, it's a permanent home for other people. There are people who have lived their life. There are people, like for me, I've lived there for more than 22 years until I came to the U.S. For my family, they have lived there for like 25 years. You know, and even two of my brothers, they were born in the refugee camp. That became our home. You know, that became our home. Even for me, like, all the activities there, everything, you know, was every memory that I have was from the refugee camp. And 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 to me, living there was was a situation where at this moment when I explained it, it was the only chance for me as a person. It was like the only chance for me as a person because if I wasn't having the opportunity to become a refugee, where would I then be? Mm. You know. And that was the only life that we knew when we were living in a refugee camp. Mm-hmm. So we would like we utilize all these resources when the, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, sometimes they will bring food, sometimes they will bring clothes, sometimes they will bring stuff like that as, as like an, waking up in the morning, going to play football. 
like every single day. That was like the only thing that we knew. There was no any other way of thinking. Maybe I'm going to make it. There's no another way of thinking. Maybe I'll leave the refugee camp. There's no another way because like that was the only thing that we were having. Mm -hmm. And to me, I was like, okay, fine. If this is my life as a human being, I was not just born to not do something. I was born, you know, to, to, to be able to like make my life better. It doesn't matter where I am. Mm -hmm. And the definition of making my life better does not define like the materials that I'm having. If it is mm -hmm. for me to be happy in the morning, you know, if it is me for me to go to like place uh, soccer, you know, and, like all those things that would actually make my life better when I was in the refugee camp. Mm -hmm. And with that, having like opportunity with like my mother, she was amazing. Being able to like support us, being able to like, you know, give us something that we, that can be able to like keep our future in, in the refugee camp. Mm -hmm. I remember I saw like the first time I saw a computer. Mm. It was like a, a refugee registration day where they were like registering refugees. But during that time, they were using a laptop. Mm. And I was like, wow, what is that? I've never seen a laptop in my life. And how old were you? 17, yeah. So the first time you saw a computer, you were 17 at the registration tables in this refugee camp. So what were you thinking when you first saw it? Uh, first of all, like the first thing that came into my mind, I was like, wow, what is that? Like, like I, I didn't even know what it is. And second to that is like, what does it take for somebody to even use it? For me, like I was like, I want to use that one day. That's what it came into my mind. Like I want to use that one day. Because like mostly when I was in the refugee camp, I was so creative. You know, I would like make, you know, puppets, I would make like anything. Being I was so creative to make sure like I create something like with what I was having. So with that creativity, like it evolved and it actually gave me like to even see a computer, to even have interest in a computer, to even like think about, hey, I came to my mother and I say like, I want to buy a computer. And she was like, what are you going to do with the computer? There's no power. There's nobody that's going to train you. There is no internet. There's no money. It's like all these things like for me to be able to like even ask about a computer. I was crazy, but I did not blame myself because I was asking her. She's a mother to me and stuff like that. And uh, she kept quiet. She went and started like saving $300, you know, to be able to buy from me a computer. Like it took her like three years to get $300. I remember uh, she came to me and said, like, here's the money you can be able to buy a computer. Like, in three years, and I was like, wow, like, I didn't expect this. And then actually, I started like, asking myself now, since I have the money now, where will I actually get the power? You know, where will I actually get the internet to even use it? Where will I actually go to school so that somebody can be able to teach me? So like now, like the reality was now coming on my way. One, if my mother can take her through the war to bring us to like a place of refuge, I think I can make it so that I can walk three hours every day to go and charge my computer. If I can make it there, you know, why not? Think about the thing that we've been through and thinking about like the thing that I can be able to do. And that gave me like really so much inspiration. That's amazing. So you got inspiration from hearing and living and experiencing and being exposed to your mother and her struggles. And that gave you the inspiration to essentially take this gift of the computer that she was able to acquire for you and say, okay, if I have to walk three hours in each direction to charge the, the computer, I'm going to do that. If I have to sit all day and all night to learn how to code, I'm going to do that. And so that's, what's, that's what gave you the inspiration. 
Yeah, and that was a lot because one is this, like, I have to think of two things, though. Like, one thing was being a refugee was not a choice for my family, right? It wasn't like a something they decide so that we can be able to, like, entirely live that life, right? It was a choice of, like, for them to identify that so that we can have a better life. Second to that, realizing that the refugee camp was going to be my home. Then I have to utilize all the resources that I have there, being content. I was happy with the resources that I was having. I was like the only kid in the refugee camp that had a computer. So like, I, and I, I, I make sure that this is something that might actually change my life. This is something that I love. And also looking at, 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 at the odds, looking at the like thing that my family went through and looking at the thing that I can be able to do and also like comparing it with, this is something that I love. So I was looking at all the other things like, you know, working three hours per day, you know, training myself how to code. Those things were not, I acknowledge them, they were so hard, but those are the only things that I can do. I did not have any other option to just walk for like three minutes and charge my computer. No, mm. I had no option. So like, I was content with the option that I was having. Lawal, how did you teach yourself to code and make video games? How did you do that? When I started like coding, I did not just say that I want to like start coding. I first found a purpose for that actually pushed me to be able to like learn how to code. Why I say that is this like, when I saw a video game, when I went to an internet cafe and my friend installed for me, there's a video game called Grand Theft Auto. So I came back home and I opened my computer and then I saw the icon of Grand Theft Auto on my computer. Wow, what is this? Like it opened like with all this stuff. Like, and I was like, wow, I've never seen something like this. And I thought like, wow, like I thought video game was something that fall from heaven. Like, you know, I never thought like people create them, you know? And then from there, like I started playing Grand Theft Auto. And then I was like, wow, games are so powerful. Games are not like movies where you can be able to like sit and and watch. You know, game, uh, whenever you're playing game, you're actually making decisions. You're making decisions. You're making decisions. You become part of you, become like the thing that you enjoy. And when I started like, playing Grand Theft Auto, it's a good game. I enjoy it. But like for me, as somebody who was in a war-torn country, like, you know, go somewhere, I thought like what was actually happening in the game is actually something that is happening in my country. And I thought, like, if I can create a game that is going to help the young people to, like, teach peace, to, like, you know, conflict resolution, to, like, you know, bring about empathy, to, like, educate people, that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. So that movement was a movement that captured me and said, wow, what is next? How can I even make a video game? And then I, then I, you have to learn how to code. And then from there, I start, like, I start, like, um, getting offline tutorials. I would like practice them like that. And then that's how I got into like the industry. That's incredible, Lawal. So the Grand Theft Auto for you was the catalyst for being inspired. So you could essentially make a video game. So instead of destroying things, you could change the minds of people to be more empathetic toward ever refugees via your video games. That was like, that was the main thing. Because by, by that time, I I was able to realize that, you know, Games are incredible. Games are amazing. And we can use them to bring the global communities together. We have a, a, a small community that, that has been left behind because people don't understand who they are. People don't understand 
their journey. And that's why like, my game is more about the journey of a refugee. If people don't understand the root cause of something or something that you're going through, they're not going to care about you because they don't know anything. And for them to really know about it, you have to like educate them. Games are incredible. Like whenever you're playing the game, it's going to be part of you. You're taking your character from a war-torn country to, to take your character to like a peaceful environment. So, and when you take it your peaceful environment, how do you think as a player? That means that you actually have the responsibility to actually help somebody, right? Empathy-wise, as a creator myself, I feel that I can be able to create an environment where somebody is going to live their life for the rest of their life. I can be able to create that. And, and the way I'm going to create that, it depends on what is my experience as a designer and also as a creator. And I believe that we can be able to use our past experiences to be able to create a sustainable future for other people. There are over 70.8 million refugees around the world. That's a lot of people. And it's something that doesn't stop. Every single day, people are displaced with different things, with different things, with different things. So I think it's our responsibility as refugees, as, as, as a designer, to be able to like put that kind of experiences into a game and connect the world together. How do you create a sense of empathy from a player in your game? So well, number one, what is the name of your game? And then give us an example of how you know your game works. The name of the, my game is Salam. Salam that means peace in Arabic. I'm from South Sudan, so most people speak Arabic. So like, and I just want to create something really uh, cool with that name. Uh, so empathy, very good question. Uh, sense of empathy. Uh, first of all is that play is a very powerful thing, right? As I mentioned before, like when it becomes part of you, when you're playing the character, when you're taking somebody from a journey, you have two things in mind, winning the game and losing the game. So when you win the game, you're going to react. When you lose the game, you're going to react, right? When you're taking your character from this war-torn country, they have difficulties they're going through. It's a high-tension runner game where your character is running away from the war. As your character is running away, the character is not running. For you as a player, you have now to play the character to be able to like be safe. And for the character to be safe, it's you as you're playing it. If your character run out of food in the game, that means that the character is not going to have the energy to run, which is a reality. It's a reality. It's not going to have the energy to run. So for you as a player, you have to like give them food to be able to, to run. So like it's you now, like, you know, no, no, I don't want to like, I, if your character run out of water, that means that your character is thirsty. You have to give them water so that like they have water in their body to, to like, this is a journey of more than 250 miles, you know? You know, it's, and it's a reality. So, and as you're doing that, you actually like become part of you. You understand now what it takes somebody to actually reach that place of, of peace, that place of mind, that refugee status. What what that's taking them, and uh, my game is going to be like the first ever game in the video game industry to be able to beat the virtual world in the reality on the ground. So what I mean is that not only is a player playing, taking the the player from the giving them food, like buying them food and stuff like that. So when you buy stuff in the game, 
you're actually buying somebody in a refugee camp food. So, so it's, 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 it's like connecting you directly with actually the real people. So like there's so much in the game that we actually developing and we are really excited about that the industry needs and it what the, the people want, yeah. I really, really, really appreciate the fact that you took the example of Grand Theft Auto, which is based in reality where people act on their self-desires in a place of lawlessness. And you took that model and you applied it to your experience as a refugee where the player in the game is a character that's seeking to get to the next stage. And the next stage is literally the next day. And they have to get food. They have to get water. They have to cross a river. They have to protect themselves from animals or other burglars or other um, or other war fighters. And so I love how your example uh, touches base with your own personal experience. And now what you're saying is you're taking your game and it's going to be the first ever game in the world that's going to be a virtual reality game simulation. It's going to allow people in the developed world to empathize and understand what it's like to actually live as a refugee. Exactly. How does that feel, man? It's, it's good. I mean, and there's one thing, though. There's one thing I love talking about a lot. For me to create something like that, what it actually taught me is more than just creating a game for refugees. It's more than it's actually like being able to see the game industry recognizing the work that I'm doing, like the whole industry in the world. And for me to be like to win the Global Gaming Citizen, you know, for me to even premiere this game at the Game Award, like the biggest award in the world. We had over 45 million viewership, like in December when we premiered the game. That alone gave me so much hope that even if you are a refugee and you're creating a product, people are not just going to love it because you're a refugee. You're creating something new in your industry. You know, like, I, and I always say people that when I decided to make game, I did not come into the industry so that I can be employed by maybe certain video game industry. I wanted to create something new experience in the industry, yeah. That's amazing. So what you're telling us is that you are your video game Salam is transforming the video gaming in the world, which is massive. What is the future then for video gaming? Is it all going to be virtual reality? Help us understand what's going on there. The future of the game, it, uh, to me, I feel like it's really amazing. Uh, first of all, uh, the game industry has changed for the last maybe 10 years. Even for the last two years, even for me to come in the industry, things are changing every single day. Uh, we are seeing games that are actually helping communities. Uh, we are seeing games that are actually telling stories. We are seeing games that are really helping in the health industry. So uh, it gives me so much hope that for me, like I'm more into like gaming for good because games are amazing. And that's why like I'm into the game industry. I have my company, I have my studio, I'm like, this game can, for good can also make money. This game for good can even, we can employ people. This game, can, we can even like be on PlayStation and stuff like that. So that it's like, and I always tell people this, like the game industry should be like the movie industry whereby when you go on Netflix, you know, you have, you have like choice of like the comedies. They are like, you know, action movies. They're like horror movies. They're like, all those are all streaming one, documentaries in one. Same thing in the game industry, when maybe when you're going on a stream, you, you, when you're going on PlayStation Play, like 
you can be able to choose the kind of game you can be able to play. And that's something that I, uh, I'm hoping and something, something that I'm bringing into the industry. And even like, as you say, like even for the first time in the game industry, they were able to create a new category, which is called like the Global Gaming Citizen. That category was only to, to recognize people in the world that are using the power of game to bring global communities. And I, I became the part, the first of those things. So, like, we need second, like, we need second of thing in the industry. Game for diversity, game like anything. We need them in the industry because this is like the biggest industry in the entertainment, the biggest industry right now. And and that's like if there's a refugee like that is listening to our podcast today, like I, I can encourage them that right. You know, it's amazing to have a great story. Mm. You know, but it's another thing also. To have a great business. How do you now think about what it's like to have gaming in this current moment, right? There's a lot of divisiveness. There's a lot of racism. There's a lot of fear of people from other parts of the world. How do you think Salam will help people better understand not only refugees, but each other? That's, that's, that's a good question. One thing I know is that as humans, we are relatable in so many ways. We are relatable in so many ways. Even if I'm a refugee, uh, the thing that I've been through, you might have been through them in a different way, right? And, and, and one thing when you look at the game industry is that um, the game industry is an industry of people or of a community who love what they want to play. Right, like they are, they, are, they are different, and that's where different kind of people. But they are people that really love what they want to play. They can they decide to play and so on. And that's why, like when you see, like during the pandemic, a lot of people now like are back to like playing video game because like <laughs> well, you have time, like you know you're you're refreshing your mind, you know, like, and you know things can can change dramatically. You know when people were like you know games are not good, you know I don't want my kid to go to go and play video game and stuff like that, knowing that the esport is up there. And that's why I was saying before, for the last five years, the, the industry has changed. People, the perception of people, of what the video game industry is, it's a, it's, it's a new industry. It's not like really long because people have to like adapt to it. Sometimes I, I will call my mom and I'm like, I make video games. And she's like, what, what are video games? Like she, <laughs> she has no idea what games are, you know. And she bought for me the computer, but still, you know, you know what I'm saying? You know, sometimes when somebody says, like, I don't play a game, I'm like, really? There's so many ways, like, it's, it's so many ways. But when I was in a refugee camp, yeah, like, we didn't have, like, access to play a game, but we could, like, quit anything. We could do anything to play because, that, like, that's, that's humanity. You have to play. You have to find a way of playing and stuff like that. Uh, so those things are, are always there. And connecting people with Salam. Is I, I get a lot of feedback, you know, uh, different feedback from the industry, from people saying like, wow, this is amazing. This is really good. I can't wait to play the game. I can't wait to see my kids, you know, buying something in the game. But knowing that he's actually buying somebody in a refugee camp food, you know, like all those stuff like coming in. And also like the, the whole leadership in the industry is, is, is beginning to like understand that games are like this, you know. I was in LA and I... And I had a conversation with um, Raji Falamini. He was like the former, he just retired. He, he was the first president of um, Nintendo America. And we we're just talking about like 
how games are so powerful and how we can like doing all those things that I can find in the industry. And that's something I'm really excited about. What I'm learning from you, Lowell, is your games and games in general are part of what it means to be a human being. We play games everywhere we go with our words, with our actions, with a console, with a computer, with a ball. We play games. It's what it means to be human. But the work that you're doing is that you're actually changing the psychology of people when they play your game, Salam. That is the most powerful thing about the work that you do, my friend, is through your story, you've created this game that's now changing the psychology of people and how they perceive the other. People like yourself, people like my family, we were refugees too at one point. And so I think that's the most magical thing about your entire story, man. And so I'm really excited to be talking to you. And so what I want to do, Lowell, is, you know, I want to wrap up this conversation. And there's always one question that I always ask all my guests as we finish. And the question is, what is your message for the world? Yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a very good question. Yeah. Um, the message for the world is, you know, we could be better. We could do better. We could, um, we could just, you know, Think about ourselves and feel and thinking about that we are not in the same boat. Like what I mean by that, like we have different circumstances, we have different problems we go through. So we shouldn't like just categorize everybody into like into one. One of my favorite quotes it's uh, from uh, Martin Luther King, where he talk about like we <laughs> we're using different way, but we're gonna end up in the same boat. You know, something like that. It is one of my favorite because no matter how you treat other people, there's human talent. And that human talent is something that you can never get rid of. No matter where you are, there will be that talent that will actually bring you out of where you are. And then you're going to end up in the same place. And um, regarding the refugees, you know, refugees are amazing people. They are not a burden to the society. Uh, these are people that just need opportunities, you know, and... Uh, and they can be able to like utilize those opportunities and make the world a better place as well. Lowell, that's great, man. Thank you for sharing your story and thank you for the work that you do, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. I'm, I'm really excited. I can't wait to share it. <laughs> thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say thank you. Okay, see you next time.